On this week's episode of Masters of the Craft, your friend Charles Johnson is on the episode. For the folks that don't know Mr. Johnson's work, can you kind of set up who he is and where they might have seen his work? Yeah, uh, uh, Charles Johnson is um, hes a friend of mine who um, uh, was also a friend of, of uh, August Wilson's as well. So um, August was sort of, I, I guess we met separately, but we all sort of knew each other. They, they hung out more because they were closer in age. Uh, I'm the, the young guy. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, Charles uh, Johnson was a teacher at the University of Washington for, I think, 30 three years, something like that, 30 years or something. He taught creative writing. And um, in fact, um, he, one of his students wrote the book, uh, Snow Falling on Cedars. Um, uh, so his students have gone on to great things, um, but couldn't be a nicer guy. Um, always very kind to me. In fact, I went to a thing where he was getting an award. <laughs> so Chuck's getting this award. And uh, they're presenting him with the award. And the first part of his speech was praising my books, which I did not expect. It was like a commercial for my stuff. He really um, um, is uh, a very supportive, uh, supportive guy of my work. And, um, but, but couldn't be a, a nicer, smarter, uh, more compassionate human being. Perfect. All right, Charles Johnson. Hello, and welcome to You Are a Storyteller, Masters of the Craft, a conversational series hosted by author and filmmaker Brian McDonald. In this episode, Brian is joined by author and scholar Charles Johnson. Charles shares why novelists shouldn't ever stop learning and how a great mentor can help an artist discover smarter, more skillful ways to approach their work. I know that you grew up in, not in Chicago, but just outside of Chicago, right? It, it was. Yeah, it's a suburb of Chicago called Evanston. Yeah, Evanston. Can you talk about what that was like at that time? Well, okay, I was born in 1948, right? So I'm growing up as a kid in uh, the suburb of Evanston in the 50s and into the early 60s, right? Um, I always describe it as being a kind of leave it to beaver town it was very quiet northwestern is there um uh, you know my high school uh evanston township high school was rated the number one best public high school in the country when i was a student there um we had uh, black students accounted for about 11 percent of the um student body population in at the high school and uh, you you had people who were kind of wealthy, I mean, they were wealthy. And so they funded a very good school system. So I had all kinds of classes in literature and art. I mean, that's really what I was passionate about from the time I was a kid, you know, in the 50s, drawing, that's all I wanted to do. Um, matter of fact, I applied to an art school and got in, uh, in, in Illinois. But then I was talking to my art teacher one day. It was like my senior year. And I had spent you know, the whole time I was in high school drawing, you know, for the student paper, right? I got two awards from um, Columbia U University, had a, a, a national uh, high school cartoonist contest. I got two second places, one for a panel and one for a strip uh, that I did with a buddy called Wonder Wild Kid. Uh, the reason that was our school uh, motto, the Wild Kids, because Northwestern was the Wildcats, okay? So we were in the shadow of Northwestern University. Um, but I bailed out. 
I was talking to my art teacher, and he said, Chuck, you know, you know, you're going to be an artist, and you're going to be a cartoonist, man. You're going to have a really rough life, okay? It's, it's going to be really – so I panicked mm-hmm. and went back to my advisor, and I said, look, I'm accepted in our school, but Mr. Reckway says artists have a hard life. What am I going to do? I mean, I, I can't apply to another school because everybody in May has got their school selected. So she opened her big book and found a school, Southern Illinois University, uh, said you could go there and major in journalism. You know, you've been writing for the school paper. You've been drawing. So I said, okay, that's what I'll do. So I didn't go as I had wanted to do, dreamed of doing all through high school, to art school. I went and majored in journalism. And that was an interesting experience for me because at that time, 1966, the journalism school, which was actually pretty well known at the time, it was started by old newsmen. Uh, Howard Long was the guy who started it. And as students, you know, we worked on the paper. We got paid for it, right? I mean, I spent four years drawing editorial cartoons and panel cartoons, you know, and, and, and illustrations for this. But one requirement, that all journalism majors had in 1966 was you had two courses in philosophy you had to take. One was logic, because our journalism teachers felt that, you know, if you're going to be a newspaper reporter, you really need to know something about logic. Mm -hmm. And then the other was an elective. So I took a course in the pre-Socratics. After that, I was seduced. I knew at 18 I had to do philosophy for the rest of my life. So as soon as I finished my, you know, journalism degree, I worked on a couple of papers, Chicago Tribune, I was a stringer. I did an internship there in 68, I guess it was. And then a paper in Southern Illinois I worked on doing news stories, you know, editorial, you you name it, everything. Um, So as soon as I finished my journalism degree, I went right back into grad school in philosophy Mm -hmm. and just stayed till I got my PhD. Okay, so there are, there are, there are a few things I, I want to unpack there because uh, you are uh, basically the same age as my mother. My mother was in, um, in Missouri in a, in a Jim Crow segregated world, a very different world yeah. where, where basically what was open to her was uh, she, she uh, had a, a prince, the principal called her into the office one day and said, would you like to be my maid? Uh, like that was the the wow. world that she lived in. So you you had, uh, as far as I know, and at least it, as far as my family is concerned, and and the people I know, your your um, existence uh, was a lot different as a black person at that time than a lot of people I know. I know St. Louis, um, and I you know because I went to Southern Illinois University. That's oh, it's just a short drive. Mm-hmm. You say Louis, for example. Yeah. And so I went to college, actually, with a wave of black students, uh, the first wave in 1966, in terms of the schools being integrated. But yeah, it, Evanston was, was uncharacteristic of a number of places. Um, it was, uh, I went to a high school that was integrated way back in the 30s. My mother graduated from it wow. before I did. Uh, we had uh, black Americans who were largely craftspeople. You know, electricians, you know, blue collar guys. Yeah. Uh, My great uncle was, he had a company called the Johnson Construction Company. All black, all black. And he built churches and residences and apartment buildings all over my hometown. Now, what happened is he came from South Carolina in like the 30s or 40s. 
he first worked as a milkman in the black community for uh, a white milk company. Mm -hmm. he, he worked construction, learned the ropes, and started his own company. Then he wrote back to um, his relatives, this is my great uncle, in South Carolina, and said, if you have any children who want to uh, need a job, you know, and this is the 30s and 40s, right? They come work for me. Dad was 25. He took up the offer. He moved from South Carolina to Evanston, worked for my great uncle, met my mom uh, through another uncle of mine who met her first. That's how I came into the world. Wow. So because of the Johnson Construction Company, <laughs> that's why on the title page of every, every one of my books, it says a work from the Johnson Construction Company. Oh. Huh. Uh, yeah, that's how they came about. Oh, okay. Uh, so, yeah. I just, yeah, I just. Evanston was different than, mm -hmm. than a lot of, well, you know, King came to uh, Chicago in 1966, January. I was a senior. I remember it. It was his first Northern campaign. Mm -hmm. right? He was directed to Chicago because of its segregation. Right. Yeah. Was segregated cities in America. Right. So you're, yeah, there, there's different arrangements that people had depending upon where they lived in respect to the falling away of something like uh, legal segregation. Yeah. And so I, I guess what I'm, I'm thinking about is you had a sense of the options you might have in the world in a way that I don't think my parents had. Right. They, they weren't around people who black people who did things and built things and made things and, uh, and so um, almost couldn't even imagine those things, I think. Really? Yeah. Uh, I'm Not exactly. I mean, my mom had aspirations to do things. I don't mean that. Um, but there didn't seem to be a path in the same way. Mm -hmm. um, um, I, I experienced that later, much later in a different way. But um, there didn't seem to be these paths. When you decided not to be a cartoonist, although you became a cartoonist, <laughs> when you decided not to, to study art, I should say, um, which is similar to my trajectory into becoming a writer in some ways, um, because I drew all the time. Yeah. And then I had a friend in, I think, eighth grade, uh, seventh or eighth grade, who, uh, who drew better than I did. And one day he said, I could not draw. Oh, and I was devastated. And then one day he came to school and he had a drawing that he had done. And he said, Brian, can you come up with a story for this? And I said, what? And he says, you're so good at that. Oh, I had no idea I had any talent in that direction. So he did, he did take something away from me. He gave me something else. Wow. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, so, so, so it sounds like he's not a friend at first. He's a complicated guy. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and so I'm just thinking about, how early did you know you had a facility for, for writing? Um, I always had, I mean, art class in elementary school was where I shined. I mean, I meant not, that was all I cared about was drawing, right? So I got patted on the head, you know, by teachers and so forth. Um, but what, what, what happened is literature, my literature classes, right, in, in uh, high school, they fed my imagination. Mm -hmm. We we read all the important writers sort of at the time, right, in, in the 60s. Um, so I relished those classes, and writing was easy for me. Okay. It, it wasn't difficult. I published my first three stories in um, the um, student newspaper's literary section. 
And th those have been anthologized um, in books called First Words is one of them. It's the earliest writing, you know, by writers that you know today. Mm -hmm. First Words by Paul Mandelbaum. He was the editor. But, you know, so writing wasn't difficult. I had a creative. See, I had a different experience than you. You wanted to take a creative writing class and some jerk teacher wouldn't let you do it. I, I was having lunch with a buddy. His name was Dick Bushnell. And he was, there's a creative writing class that he wanted to take and he wanted to have a friend in it. So I went along with him. I think we spent most of our time chatting and not listening to the teacher, Marie Claire Davis. She was publishing in the Saturday Evening Post at the time. She, um, her claim to fame, you know, she did a, a history of the high school. And I just, you know, I enjoyed her class. And then later, I, I set up an award in her name at the high school. It's been going for a long time now. It's called the Marie Claire Davis Award. And we give money, a certain amount of money, to the best student portfolio uh, for a senior that year. But Marie, you know, she took my stories and published them because she was faculty supervisor for the student paper. So, okay, you know, she's publishing, putting my stories in there. I was really still, still into drawing. That was my passion. Um, but, but the two feed each other. Um, the writing and, and the drawing, it's all stimulating the imagination. Um, so I never saw myself as being somebody who was going to be a writer. I have friends, um, like the uh, Stanley Crouch, who will say things like, knew he wanted to be a writer from the time he was in elementary school. I didn't. I knew I wanted to draw. Um, I would make trips when I was in high school to New York, stay with, in Brooklyn with my relatives, and pound the pavement of Manhattan going from one place to the other, one editor to another, seeing if I could get work. I mean, I was still in high school. I was a student, uh, correspondence course, of Lawrence Larrier, uh, who did um, the best cartoons of the year. He published about 100 books uh, of his own. Uh, he also wrote mystery stories under three pseudonyms. I would visit him on Long Island, and then I'd pound the pavement with my swatch which was my, you know, um, samples, right? Uh, I met, and people would let me in. I mean, I'm this kid from Illinois, right? 16, 17 years old. So they let me in, they talked to me. I wasn't getting any work in New York, okay? Because it was all in-house and staff. Right. But I, I met Charles Bar Barsotti, uh, who published usually a lot in New Yorker, right? Barsotti. Uh, he was young then. I mean, I was a teenager. He must have been 20-ish. I remember something he, he said to me. He wrote to me later and said, you know, there's a way you could, something special you could do as a black cartoonist. In other words, subject matter that him and his white buddy cartoonist friends couldn't touch. And I didn't really think about that until I would say it was 1969. Uh, and Mary Baraka came and gave a lecture at the school I was at. And I remember he said to the students there, blacks, he wouldn't talk to white students at all. No questions, and He wouldn't answer them. He had two bodyguards on either side of him. And he read poetry, then he did a Q&A. He said to the black students, you should take your talent back to the black community. I felt he was talking to me. I went home that or to my dorm that night and spent a solid week drawing cartoons about black history, black culture. I just hadn't mind that material. The ideas just kept coming. Uh, and after a week, 
I went through like two bottles of Indian ink. I had a book, and I didn't know what to do with it. So I talked to my teachers in the journalism school. They didn't know what to do with it, but they got me an internship that following summer at the Chicago Tribune. So I go to the Tribune. I'm working on a, a column. It's a public service column called Action Express. Um, and I also got to draw sometimes, you know, for the column, right, cartoons. Well, I walked down the hallway one day to the book editor, Bob Cromie. That was his name, Bob Cromie. And I said, I got this book I did of cartoons, and I don't know where to send it. Well, he said, said, you should go down to Johnson Publications. It's just right down the street on Michigan Avenue. These are the people who do Ebony and Jet, you know, and all that. So I called him up and made an appointment, went over there, dropped off my manuscript, and about a week later, I get a call back from um, John H. Johnson's secretary, and they want to publish the book. And I said, well, cool. I went by and I met the guy, John H. Johnson, uh, shook his hand. He thought the cartoons were funny. And it came out in 1970 um, called Black Humor. And that was the same year I had a TV show called Charlie's Pad, where I drew 52 15-minute lessons teaching viewers how to cartoon. Um, it was in the early days of PBS. It wasn't even called PBS. It's called Educational TV. And when I was in college, I mean, I, mean, I, I did everything for the town paper in terms of drawing, the Southern Illinois, the student paper. One day I was bored. I said, I sent a letter to the local PBS station, WSIU TV. I said, would you guys be interested in me doing a TV show? And I didn't expect to hear back. Um, but this was the year after the Corporation for Public Broadcasting was formed. Okay, so right. stations all over the country needed content. So I went in, and they said, yeah, we'll do it, but PBS, we can't pay you. Uh, and so I said to myself, okay, I'm not getting paid, but do I want to do this? Yeah, I'll do this, just for the sake of doing it. Mm -hmm. so I learned how to be on camera for 52 15-minute episodes. It showed all over the place. It showed in Chicago. It showed in Boston. What year, what year was this? 1970. I may have seen it. You may, well, it showed all over the country because what, you, what stations could do, they could run one a week. That was my mm -hmm. intention. Or they could put two together for a half-hour block. Mm -hmm. Or they could do an hour block. You know, you could arrange the shows any way that you wanted to do it. Um, and it was based on my lessons when I was uh, – what was like 15 and 16 uh, with Lawrence Larrier, um, you know, who did all kinds of books, like I said. There, I based the show on his lessons. Um, it's hard to find now. I mean, because the reels, you know, they, they got moved out of the station. And, oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, I, I've got a sample reel with three shows on it, but I never look at it because sure. it looks to me like I'm, I mean, I, I'm so young. I, it's like an animated high school photo you know yeah, yeah. I, just, I can't look at this i understand so yeah, yeah. That, that that was another life but I, you know it's it's fun i really do think i may have seen it somewhere in the recent because i was five in 1970 so i and i drew all the time so yeah, you might have yeah it, it showed in canada um i, I think it was up yeah, it popped up here now for like 10 years yeah i thought but I, I, did I, I i had moved on sure because after doing the 52 uh, 15 minute uh, drawing lessons, I realized for the first time, I don't really enjoy being in front of the camera. Mm -hmm. I like to be behind the camera writing something mm -hmm. for somebody else. I, I had no interest 
and being in front of the camera or being an actor or anything like that. Um, and then years later, as it turns out, once I was at UW, you know, I started, I, I got hired in 1976, right? Um, about the second quarter I was teaching, I got a call to um, write um, the, a docudrama uh, about the oldest living American, Charlie Smith. He was 137, the oldest person on Social Security. And I wrote that show. Uh, it had hey, it had Morgan Freeman in it. He had just come off the Electric Company. Oh right, yeah, yeah. Glenn Turman was in it. Um, Richard Ward, the late Richard Ward, played him. Um, it was my first time writing for you know uh, for television. Right, mm -hmm. it, was, it was ninety minutes, uh, and that led to uh, twenty years of work. Basically, I did about twenty teleplays and screenplays uh, from that point, 1977, till the early 90s, I guess. Okay. Wow. So I, here's, I want to ask you about, um, about your approach to the work. What, what, when you started writing, what, what did you feel, or even, even now, how does it evolve? How, did, how do you feel about what your job is as a writer? What, is, what are you supposed to do as a writer? What is your job? Other than writing well, what are you doing? Well, when I first started writing novels, it was like 1970, actually. I wrote six novels in two years. Remember, I was trained as a journalist. Right. I could produce copy. Ten pages a day, five days a week. And you do that, you got a book manuscript mm -hmm. and a ten-week you know, quarter. I mean, basically, that's, and, and that was first draft for me. Uh, 10 pages a day, take off time on the weekend. I, I want to stop you for a second because yeah. being a journalist, something happens you write about. Being a novelist, nothing happens that you write about it, right? So, so <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you're, 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 you're generating material. It's different than reporting. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I, I had the work ethic. Okay. But, but let me point, point this out. Those I call apprentice novels. They okay. were six in, um, in two years. And uh, the third, uh, the last three were a trilogy. I wanted, you know, I mean, this is a young man's uh, folly. I was going to write a trilogy about a musician. And I had a buddy who was a musician and gave me lessons on the piano. Um, it, it, the first book uh, was called Youngblood. And he's a young boy learning how to be a pianist. And then the second book, uh, he's a grown man. Third one, he's middle-aged. Now, that was the last three. Now, one of the earlier ones, the earlier three, was an earlier version of Middle Passage. Okay. And I started doing research with before I graduated. Uh, I was still in my senior year. And I, we had a visiting professor who was black from St. Louis because we had no black professors. Mm -hmm. And I took his course. And I asked him if I could do my research on the Middle Passage. He said, sure. So I used that when I turned to the novel. Now, but let me tell you something else, too. When I went to college, there were no black teachers. Mm -hmm. So around 1969, I guess it was, the graduate students who from different departments, one of them was a friend of mine, Tom Slaughter, in philosophy. He taught the logic class. He, well, he was uh, TA. So he uh, was TA for the uh, discussion group of the logic class that I took. So I knew Tom all the way through undergraduate school. We both got our PhDs at Stony Brook University 
um, did our dissertations with uh, phenomenologist Don Eide. But back then, I was undergraduate, he was a grad student. The grad students got together and put together a course, a survey of black America uh, history and so forth. And they would give lectures and they selected 10 of us undergraduates to be discussion group leaders. So that year, I mean, I, I prepared for my class. I read everything I could. I, I read all of uh, From Slavery to Freedom by John Hope Franklin, that big thing. So I could prepare for my discussion group, right? Well, um, and, so the, and that was you know, the beginning of uh, black, black American uh, studies uh, at that school, right? But so what they did was they brought in a visiting professor at one point, and uh, I took his course, and I did my early research on uh, Middle Passage. It was the second of the six books that I tried to write, but I wasn't ready to write. Yeah. I read everything conceivable about literature and aesthetics that I could uh, in that period, right? During that two-year period, uh, anything that had to do with writing. Uh, I was building a library. But mm -hmm. each one of the books, I learned something. The first book wasn't good. It was, a, it was about my experiences uh, in Chicago in a martial arts school. Um, and it's called The Last Liberation. But I wasn't ready to do it. But what I learned from the first book, I could put together 250 pages of something. If I could do it once, I could do it again. Right. I went to the second book. And then the third book, and each one, let's say character, characterization wasn't working. I worked on that in the next book. Description wasn't as up to par as it should be. I worked on that in the next book. Six books like that, apprentice novels, teaching myself how to write. With the seventh book, which became Faith in the Good Thing, my first published book, I uh, tapped, uh, I, I became a student of the late uh, writer John Gardner, who was at the school, and he became probably the uh, best teacher of creative writing, literary fiction, in our time. He did three books very important, The Art of Fiction, On Moral Fiction, and On Becoming a Novelist. I want to stop you for a second. I want to go back to something. Okay. So when you talk about writing those apprentice novels, there's something, there's an interesting thing. I read an interview years ago uh, with Frank Darabont talking about writing Shawshank and uh, the screenplay. And he said, I can't remember how, what the context was or why he brought it up, but he said, you have to write five screenplays before you write a good one. Okay. You have to write five. Yeah. And, uh, and I remember, oh, yeah, I've done that. You know, I, I've written that many or whatever it was at the time I'd written. And that seems right. And what I find is when I tell people that, because when people write a screenplay, they think, well, I've written a screenplay. Point me in the direction of Steven Spielberg. You know what I mean? Like, you know what I mean? They don't understand that um, it's a craft and that it takes time and that you have to you have to work at it. And that first thing is probably not so great. So, yeah. but they don't they don't understand that because it's often <laughs> so hard to get that first one out. It is, yeah. Um, that that they think they've really and it is an accomplishment, but it isn't the accomplishment that they think it is. Exactly. And and. I say to people, well, if it bothers you, if it scares you that you have to write five of these before you get good at it, you probably shouldn't do it. You're not prepared to do the work it takes to get good at this. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's fine. That's not a crime. There's plenty of things I would like to do. I don't want to do the work to get good at them. That's why I don't play a musical instrument. That's why I don't speak another language, right? <laughs> I don't want to 
stumble through it. But I know that, so I'm fine with it. Uh, but people who don't want to stumble through something really can't master it. Because well, writing those novels without getting published and, and, and knowing where the faults were and still writing, that's... Um, now, let, me, let me pick up on something I said. The last three I told you were going to be a trilogy, a thousand-page story, right? Yeah. A Young Man's Folly. Um, the first book in that series, Youngblood, was accepted uh, by a New York startup publisher. And I'm working on the seventh book with John Gardner at the time, Faith in a Good Thing. I got two chapters. I don't know if I, I could even finish it. But here was a bird in the hand. Here was acceptance of this book, Youngblood. But the problem was, for me, I'd moved on. My goal was to write philosophical fiction, to fill that void that I think we have in American literature for philosophical you know, works that probe perennial questions. Um, I was just beginning to find how to do that. My voice, uh, it had a storyteller voice too, Faith and the Good Thing. So I turned, I, I turned to John Gardner and I said, look, I got an acceptance. Everybody wants to get published. What do I do? Because this isn't me anymore. See, you always write like who you read. Right. I was under the influence of naturalistic writers who I admired, like Baldwin, uh, John A. Williams, you know, uh, black writers who wrote the naturalistic vein. But with Faith and, Faith and the Good Thing, I take a fabulous, magical, some people would call it uh, magic realism mm -hmm. approach. So I said, the, uh, this other book is not me. So he said something very wise. He said, if you think you're going to have to climb over it later, don't publish it. Mm. So I wrote to them and asked for the book back. And I'm glad that I did. Wow. Because, you know, your debut novel is very important. Because, I mean, you've been working hard, you know, writing. Nobody just shows up having written a book overnight. That, this person has probably been writing for a while. Right. It's their debut book. Here's what's going to happen. People are going to size you up on the basis of that. 80% of first novelists do not publish another novel. So the critics are going to say, this person is good at this, has these virtues. This is a writer to watch. Okay. You broke the ice. You got your first book out. The second book is equally important because it says three things. One, I'm going beyond the first book in terms of what, you know, my ambitions and what I'm going to cover. Um, secondly, I'm, uh, the first book was not a fluke. Right. I'm, not, I'm not just a one-book author, you know. Uh, this, and, the, and the third thing it says, I'm here to stay. Mm -hmm. You get really good reviews on the second book, then they'll give you a kind of break, you know, for the third one, right? You can do whatever you want. But you got to demonstrate that you are serious. You're, you're here to stay in terms of American literature, right? Mm -hmm. Now, when I mentioned the six books prior to the seventh when I worked on with John Gardner, I didn't know how to revise the first six. I'd write through and then go back to the beginning and write through again. I, I was working with Gardner, and he's looking at one of my chapters, and he's making suggestions. And I say, oh, okay, well, I'll take care of that when I get to the end of the book. Uh, I'll, I'll deal. He said, no, you can't do that. You have to make it right now <laughs> yeah. before you go ahead. Yeah. And I said, okay, I've tried six books, my, my approach. Let me try this. So my process of revision changed. 
uh, I dig deeper into the first draft pages and, and basically deeper and deeper in terms of delineating character and background and setting and music. You want music and meaning. You want sound and sense. When you do that, you're pushed into the next paragraph and the next page rather than writing the whole thing out, you know, and then going back and trying. No, no, that doesn't work for me. So my process of revision is such that I will throw away 20 pages to get one. Uh, Faith, in the, Faith in the Good Thing, I, th I threw out 1,200 pages. The, really? second, the second book, Oxerting Tale, 2,000 uh, pages. Uh, the third book was uh, Middle Passage. That was uh, 3,000 pages. Dreamer, after that, that was 3,000 pages as well. Uh, my ratio of throwaway to keep can be 20 to 1. I keep all the drafts in a box and sure. I count them you know, when I'm done. Can I ask you about, about what, what, are you, what are you throwing away? What are, what's, what's happening there? Why is it 20 to 1? What are you throwing away and what are you keeping and how do you make that decision about what you're throwing away and what you're keeping? Well, I mean, I, I'm constantly uh, revising. I mean, even as I uh, push forward with new, pa new pages, right, I'm revising the earlier material too. Um, you, you can look at my book that I did, The Way of the Writer. Mm -hmm. I, uh, uh, I have a chapter there on the process uh, moving from one draft to the other um, in, in that particular book on the writing craft. Um, sometimes it could be a major rewrite. You know, when I did uh, Middle Passage, I started in 83, finished in 89, and it was published in 1990, right? Um, I wrote the first draft in two years. That was too fast. Mm -hmm. It was way too fast. So I had to back up, and during that period of time, now I had spent 17 years accumulating uh, research and information on the North Atlantic, North Atlantic slave trade. But the first time I tried to do it, like I said, when I was undergraduate, I wasn't ready. Right. I come back to it in 83 after doing well, Wait, I'm going to stop you again. When you say you weren't ready, what do you mean? Oh, I didn't have the, the craft, the skill. Okay. I first started writing, you know, at the first draft of this in like 71. Okay. So I come back to it in 83. By that time, I've got the research because I've been doing, I mean, I've been doing a lot of stuff, uh, uh, PBS drama, uh, slave dramas, you know, I mean, getting research. I mean, I did Booker, uh, which got a uh, Writers Guild Award in 1985, the best uh, script in uh, the children's show category. And, and it got a lot of awards, but it also got um, that, that uh, Writers Guild Award over there. I mean, you know, when you do something like that, the producers get historians to work with you. You get lots of material, you know. And so I, I was always studying um, the, the, you know, the slave period. But this time, I wanted to do what hadn't been done, which is a novel that puts us on those ships, you know, during the Middle Passage. Yeah. Every conceivable detail that I could get out of it. But even more important, I, wanted, I, want, I conceived of it as a rousing sea adventure story. So during that seven, six, seven years I was working on, six years, I read every sea story I could get my hands on. I read all of Melville, but not for story. I read for props, for costuming, for parts of you know, the ships, right? Uh -huh. I read the Sinbad stories. I read Two Years Before the Mast. Every sea story I could possibly absorb in six years, I did. So after two years, you know, it was too fast, so I backed up. And uh, actually, if you know the novel, um, there's a mutiny 
mm -hmm. by the slaves. That was in the first uh, two in the first two years. I figured that out. When I came back to it, I realized there's going to be a mutiny among the crew against the captain. So we had two mutinies going on. Secondly, when I wrote the end of the first you know, version of this, the main character, Rutherford Cal Calhoun, survives the wreck of the Republic with the cabin boy. And they go back to New Orleans looking for the woman he uh, left New Orleans with because he didn't want to get married, right? right. So he jumps on his ship, doesn't know it's a slave ship. So he goes from the frying pan into the fire. Well, he goes back looking for her, but she's not there. And what has happened in that version is his brother in Southern, Southern Illinois has come looking for him in New Orleans. He meets his adora. They're perfect for each other. And so one day, Rutherford's walking down the street with Tommy, the cabin boy, and he sees a um, baptism going on, something like that. So he sticks his head in the church. It's his brother and, and Isadora, and they've had a baby. And they're naming the baby after Rutherford, who they figured was lost at sea. Now, he, these are the two people he loves most in the world, mm -hmm. most in the world, his brother and Isadora. But he thinks about it, and he says, you know, I could interrupt this and say, hey, I'm alive. I survived. But guess what? They're perfect for each other. So he decides to go back to sea with Tommy. Well, you know, that was, I didn't like that because a couple of things had to happen. One, he has to be reunited with uh, Isadora, who he saw, you know, was trying to get him to marry her in the beginning. You know, uh, critics have said this about this book, Middle Passage. Mm -hmm. It starts out as a picaresque because Rutherford's a picaro. And then it turns into an epic when you're at sea, right? It's a sea epic. And it finally comes to rest at the end as a romance. So we've got to get those two back together because he's Odysseus and she's mm -hmm. Penelope, okay? Right. So I had to, I rewrote it that way. So once we leave Africa, also in the earlier version, I had them uh, wandering and they go to an island where I create a whole bunch of people. See, the working title for Middle Passage was Rutherford's Travels. Because I wanted in the spirit of Gulliver's Travel. Yeah. So they go to an island. Uh, the Africans have taken over the ship. And they meet these weird people. And, you know, it, it's no good. Once, so when I rewrote it, once they leave Africa, they never set foot on land. And the reason for that is you have to have the chronic tension of the possibility of dying at sea. Mm-hmm. And so we never, he never touched, he's never touching land until even the end of the book, he's still on another ship where he's reunited with Isadora, right? You, you see the principle here? The principle is the things that you set up in the very beginning of the book, right? You're, you, you might want to say uh, act one or something like that. Um, what you've done in that, in, you know, you can do anything you want in, the, in Act 1, at the beginning of a story. But you are despoiling possibilities. Right. So what you want is an inexorable cause and effect feeling. Right all the way through the story. Mm -hmm. Unpacking the implications of everything, at, you know, that you've established in the beginning. That's the logic, you know, that, that, that we have to maintain. If we, if we veer away from that, if we get, you know, I mean, 
novels, by the time you get to the end of a novel, you're tired. <laughs> you have to right, yeah. And 3,000 pages. You just want to wrap this thing up, okay? Um, but uh, no, you, you can't do that. Every plot, now I'm quoting John Gardner now, is the writer's equivalent to the philosopher's argument. Your plot is based on causation. This causes that. Mm -hmm. So basically, the drama you're constructing is an argument. Yeah. So is that, what did you, when, when you were, were learning from John Gardner, what's, what, what was important to him as a teacher to impart? And what did you find important to impart to your students, what you taught for 35 years or something? Yeah. So, so what did you learn? What did you take? 33 years. 33. 33 years. So what did you take from, uh, from, uh, from John Gardner? When I first met him, I was working part-time on a newspaper called the Southern Illinoisan to put myself through the master's program mm -hmm. in, in philosophy. And I opened the paper one day, I see an ad for professional writing taught by this guy Gardner. I'd heard about him. Mm -hmm. Friends of mine who were English majors took his classes. And there were all kinds of stories about him, um, you know, circling on campus. I didn't know the guy, but I'm working on, I want to start my seventh novel. So I call him up and I said, can I get in your class? I'm a grad student in philosophy. He said, sure, come by my farmhouse. So I go by the farmhouse with six books under my arm. And it's the first meeting. It's a beginning class. I really don't need to be there. So afterwards, I said to him, you know, I, I, I want to, you know, I said a couple of things. But he looked at the six books and he said, what do you want from me? You can write. And I said, yeah, I can write. I mean, I can produce copy. But I, I'm hearing from some editors, there's two areas where I can improve, voice and rhythm. And he said, oh, I, I can help you with that. And he, he could. He was a prose stylist. The music of his prose is, is there in Grindel and in many, many of his works. So I told him, look, I'm going to come to your office when I've got something to show you. I'm not going to come to this you know, beginning class here. So voice and rhythm, just by reading his works carefully, is something that I took away from Gardner. Also, his work ethic. Work ethic. This guy can write for 72 hours straight without sleep. If it were not for Gardner, I really wouldn't have read medieval literature, but I did and took a course of his on the epic because he wrote an epic called Jason and Medea and co-taught a course on, on the epic with other people. So, you know, I'm, I'm reading Virgil and I'm reading Homer and I'm reading, you know, the, the history of the epic. Um, he was a scholar. He was also a musician, uh, played the libretto. Um, he was a, a polymathic, you know, creator. Uh, and that inspired me because like Lawrence Larrier, I like artists who are prolific and produce a lot and are mm -hmm. always working. If you're going to be a novelist, you're in this for the long haul. You're going to be learning across seven. Well, yeah, I've been publishing novels, uh, excuse me, drawings and stories for 55 years since 1967 when I was 17. You're always learning with each new work that you do, why? Because it's not the same as the last one. There's two things that happen that are really important. One is problem solving. With each new work, it's a different set of pro creative problems. Secondly, discovery. You discover something during the creation of this gift 
that you're going to give to others because that's the way I see it. I don't do this for money. I don't do this for le- for fame. Screw all that. This is my best technique, my best thought, my best feeling, the best I can give to others. So if it takes six years, fine. If it takes seven years, that's how long I worked on Dreamer. Seven years, the novel about Martin Luther King. Because he doesn't appear as a character in our literature. Mm-hmm. He doesn't. He's not there. And especially not the philosophical King, right? So there's, you, know, you, you need to study literature to see what's been done mm-hmm. by your predecessors. Learn how they solve problems creatively that you yourself are going to face, right? And then you know what to do next to enrich that literature. So, I mean, I, I learned a certain way of, I mean, it, it was already in me, you know, because I was a cartoonist and I, I published hundreds, if not thousands of drawings, right? So I could see how you do that through John with writing. Okay. Okay, because I was already prepared as a journalist and cartoonist, right? So I, I made the transition uh, to, to using the same uh, 24-7 approach mm-hmm. uh, as, as a writer. And when I say you're in for a long time, I mean this. Um, the late Jacob Lawrence, the painter, uh, my, my former colleague at UW, he was painting to the last day of his life. You know, August Wilson, our mutual friend, he, he did 10 plays, his cycle, yeah. you know, the century cycle. But I know he wanted to write a novel after completing yeah. yeah. the 10 plays. And had he lived, he would still be working to this very day. Yeah, he told me he was going to retire. He goes, I'm going to retire because then there's no pressure. And then I can produce what I want to produce. Yeah. But he was going to, yeah, he was going to keep working. Well, that's what he told me too. Yeah. He was going to announce I'm retiring. Yeah. The reporters would go away. Yeah. He could sit on his porch on Capitol Hill, read all the books he could never have a chance to get to. Yeah. He's producing a play like every two years. Yeah. It was insane. how much He could play with his daughter. He's going to play with his daughter. Mm -hmm. He was going to do like Eugene O'Neill. When he supposedly retired. That's what he said to me, too. After 10 years, come back with three of the best plays you could ever imagine. Yeah, that's what he That was about. what his plan was going to be. And a novel. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, if you're an artist, you're in this 24-7. Yeah. Um, let's, so, so um, this idea of voice. Here's the interesting thing for me about voice. When I'm talking to students, um, it's almost, they don't get the craft part first, right? So, so what they want to do is be different first, or they want to, to find their, when, when people say find your voice, um, it becomes an affect for a young writer, right? Like, what, how, you know, I'll do it like this, I'll do it like that. When you hear that, or when you tell somebody that, or when you were hearing that, how do you interpret that? I have a way that I interpret it, but I want to know how you interpret it. Find your own voice? Yeah. What does well, that mean? I, I, have a, I have a lot of feeling, uh, thoughts about that. I think voice and vision are two sides of the same phenomenon. Mm-hmm. The reason young writers don't have a voice yet is because they don't have a vision of how life works yet. They're too young. They, have, they don't have enough experience. Once you discover what you really feel, um, your, your voice becomes the... Um, vehicle for delivering that vision you know that you have 
It takes a while, in other words, to develop, you know, a voice. Now, one of the things I do, oh, I picked this up from Gardner, too. It's called narrative ventriloquism. Uh, you change voices uh, from story to story, particularly in first person. The mm -hmm. diction, the rhythm, the music for each speaker in a first person story had better be different, right, based on who your protagonist narrator is. Yeah. But I feel you should have that same sense of voice in a third person limited stories as well. Voice is extremely important. Um, so near the ventriloquism, you'll see it in my four story collections, particularly the last one, Nighthawks. Um, I, I, those stories are all over space and time. You know, they go always back to ancient India, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the Athenians. Uh, they move forward in time, even to a story set in the future, as well as stories set here in Seattle with black characters with characters who um, are Muslim Americans. Um, you know, in, in other words, there, there is no limit, right? Because mm -hmm. each one of us, and think about this, has many voices inside of us. Each one of us can be a mimic, you know, has many voices. You can, you can put on a mask, it's like, uh, you know, um, it's like you're doing your characters, it's like a Punch and Judy show. And you're changing voices for the characters as you go back and forth, right? Mm -hmm. um, but then, I have my own voice, and that usually appears in the nonfiction I do. I mean, I've published 25 books. There's two more uh, in the pipeline. They're, they're both graphic novels, right? Mm -hmm. But the body of my work, a lot of it, because I'm a philosopher, is nonfiction. And so I don't change my voice there. Mm -hmm. and, you know, the, the, the diction that I use, the word choice, um, it's, it's just me. Some writers never change. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, D.H. Lawrence does not change voice, voices in his novels and stories. Um, P.G. Wodehouse does not change voices, you know, in his, his novels. Um, uh, Kurt Vonnegut doesn't change voices. Why? It's because we, we like that voice. It's mm -hmm. Vonnegut's voice. Now, that's why you go to the novel, because you right. want to hear... Vonnegut's voice delivering the story, right? Right. But I'm a little bit different. I, like Gardner, would do narrative ventriloquism mm -hmm. in my fiction, novels and stories, but not in the essays, not, not in the um, nonfiction. It's almost a, like a certain kind of actor, right? There are actors. Yes. Uh, I, I love Tom Hanks. I got nothing bad to say about Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks is always Tom Hanks. I believe him in every movie that he's in. I believe he's in that circumstance. That's Tom Hanks doing this. That's Tom Hanks doing this. And I believe it and I buy it and I'm invested. But it's not the same as Gary Oldman, who's a chameleon. Yes. Right? Um, yeah. Right? Um, and, and sometimes people think one skill set is, is more than another. And I don't think that that's true. I just think that they are just different skill sets. Like, you know, the fact that, that Gary Oldman is a, is a chameleon is just that he's a chameleon. And that's the way he, that, that in a way is his voice. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 You know, no, uh, I know exactly what you're talking about. The, yeah. The, the individual actor disappears into the character he's playing from one film to the next, yeah. as opposed to the actor who's playing himself. Uh, in different roles of situation, you know, different yeah. characters. In yeah. different circumstances. It's like, well, this is Tom Hanks in this circumstance. Right, <laughs> you know? You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, and, yeah. But um, for me, when I hear voice, when I hear uh, find your voice, it's really about 
and maybe this is what you were saying, finding out who you are. Yes. Right? And being honest about who you are. Yes. And, and your voice comes out of that because you're not, it's not an affectation. No, not at right? all. So I would simply add that to find your voice is to find your vision. Mm-hmm. How you see the world. Yeah. And, and that takes time. I mean, uh, it's really rare for a 20 year old to, you know, have been bumped around enough in life to, to, you know, have a certain sense of authority. Right. Based on experience, because they haven't had the experience yet. And they haven't read enough yet in literature, history, you know, philo- they, they just, it takes time. Right. And just living life. Just. Exactly. Be, just being alive will teach you things. Yep. You know, um, and I, I, it's patterns. Life is patterns, right? So that you, go, you, you say, oh, this is how this goes. I've seen this before, right? You know, you, and, it's, and so now you have a sense. Now everybody's going to see different things, but at least they're seeing patterns. And those patterns give you a sense of what the world is like. Now, it's going to be different for you than me. It's going to be, di- you know, we're born at different times and different places or whatever it is. So we may look at the same events differently, but we're, we're seeing clear patterns. And it's the, the ability to see those patterns over time that allows you to draw conclusions, I think, that then gives you your voice. That sounds really good to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. By the way, I used uh, something of yours the other day. Uh, which was um, you talked about um, stories being like a funnel. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, which I find really useful. I was, I was giving a presentation, and I'm like, hey, a friend of mine says this. Can you <laughs> explain that just so that uh, – because it's on my mind because I had just used it. But. Well, yeah, that's I, – I remember drawing that funnel on the blackboard for my students. You know, you start out – you start out with the big end of the funnel. When you start your story, you can do anything. You can set it anywhere. You can make your character tall, short, male, female. But what it is, is you despoil possibilities with every decision that you make, right, in the first part of the story. So in the first part of the story, you're in the realm of the, uh, of, of the possible. By the time you get to the middle of the story, after despoiling more and more details, you're in the realm of the probable. And you set this up yourself by the details that you selected, right? Right. But you move from the possible to the probable. And then the third part of the story, it's the realm of of necessity. Right. Certain things are not going to happen because the way you've despoiled possibilities for this character. Right. It's it's much narrower at the end. Yeah. In terms of cause and effect, only certain things can come about. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's like a funnel in that sense. Yeah. I, uh, I always think of it as, uh, as story math, I call it, that the story math can only add up to a certain thing at the end or it's not working, right? So if your story math is off, it's like, well, you can't, that doesn't, everything you said doesn't equal this. That's right. Right. No, that, that's a great way to put it because when you get to that third part, the realm of necessity, when the funnel is very small, you can't just have any old thing happen. No. You can't just throw any old thing you want into that. No. Uh, it's not going to work. Uh, it has to proceed with profluence, with cause and effect from everything that came before, if it's going to be logical. Right. If the viewer or the reader 
is is not going to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, that that doesn't make sense. This this character would not do that, you know. Or you've got do a duess machina, you know. Right. You solve the problem by the machine of the gods who just come in and magically. No, no, it can't happen that way. At least not in what we typically call a naturalistic story. However, even if you're doing fantasy, you lock yourself in. Oh, yeah. You know, you've made decisions, you know, about something, about what a dragon is like. Yeah. By the middle of the story, you cannot change what the rules are that you set up. If you say a dragon can only breathe fire when he hiccups, and he breathes fire in the middle of the story, he's not hiccuping. (laughs) Yeah. No, that doesn't make sense. You just, you just contradicted yourself, right? Yeah. You have to play by the rules you establish. Exactly, yes. You know? Um, and actually, that becomes, sometimes it's challenging, but that's where the fun comes in, actually, sometimes. Working within those boundaries and doing something unexpected often within those constraints. Discovering something. Yeah. Unexpected that you didn't know would be there before. Right. Um, yeah, I always tell people that the solution to their story problems is always inside the story. They don't have to go outside the story to find the solution. Often people are like, what if I bring this in? What if I bring this in? It's like, no, it's already in there. It's already in there. Just look inside your story. I used to tell students when they got to the end of a story and they were having trouble, the reason is because they did not set up things right in the first part of the story. Yeah. So they may have to go back in and rebuild something in mm-hmm. order to get that result uh, that they want at the end. That, so it has uh, a logical feel. It's an argument, you know, a dramatic argument, and it has coherence. You know, what we do when we tell stories is we interpret the world for others. That's what's happening. We're interpreting human experience for other people. That means that we're hopefully bringing clarity to human experience, Right. So, yeah, it, it's, gotta, it's all there in the beginning. And yeah. that's where you really want to front load your energies. Um, and then by the time you get to the end, you're just, tr- it's like you're a reporter. Yeah. You're, you're just playing and just going through what must happen and just describing it. That's it. It's, it's fun. I spend a lot of time when I'm teaching on the first act and explaining how important it is and trying to, to get people to understand how to make a solid, strong first act. And often people will say, well, that's fine, but what do I, how do I do the second and third act? Now, it's not like I ignore those things, but it's like, you don't understand. I'm telling you about the foundation of your, if you can do this, you can do the other things. That's right. But this is the, this is the foundation you're building on. It's uh, really confusing to people, but that's just, that's just how it works. I don't know. I mean, I, I, you know, you're one of the finest teachers of of story that I know in my personal experience. Thank you. Um, you never say anything wrong. <laughs> I remember when I first met you, my thought was, wait a minute, this guy sounds like me, but he's more clear than I am. You know, <laughs> like, Who is this Brian McDonald? Invisible Ink is just, uh, it's golden, man. It's, oh, a, thank it's you. a gift. It's a gift to everybody who wants to write in that medium of film. Uh, but the principles are the same uh, for, for any form of storytelling, really. Um, I would add, you know, when I talk to students, what the, I really want them to understand is, uh, first of all, you need to know what the ground situation is. Mm-hmm. Some people would call that the conflict, but it's the ground situation that the characters are in. But even more important is character. Character is the engine of plot. Mm-hmm. 
You don't have you know stock characters. You have individual characters who, based on their history, their you know place in society, you know uh, who the mom was and their dad was. This is an individual character who is not going to do certain things, and you can't force that on them as the writer. Yeah. Then you see the heavy hand of the writer manipulating them like a puppet. So you dig deep into character, and then, you know, it's a little cliche, several characters in the novel, it's like they take over and, you know, they, they take the story away from you. Now, that's what you usually mean by that. Uh, you can't violate Right. Characters who you've given lots of depth and density to in the beginning. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's come up now uh, on a couple of these uh, episodes, but I think it's appropriate in this instance, too, to talk about this. The, the best piece of writing advice I ever got. Do you know this? So I, I was at a comic book convention when I was a teenager, and, and there was a, a, a panelist of uh, a panel of, um, of uh, writers and artists from comic books. And this one writer, I think it was Steve Englehart, um, said as a piece of advice, he says, well, if you have a Batman story and you can make it a Superman story, it's not a good Batman story. And that was the best piece of advice I ever got about writing. That's interesting. Because what that says is only this character can have this story. Yes. Right? That is incredibly important. Yeah. You have to understand your protagonist for sure. Yeah. But, you know, you're going to have other characters, too, and uh, they're going to, well, you know, they're, they're going to be round. That's the way we used to talk about it. Yeah. As opposed to flat. Right. The flat character is, is, is not changing. It has to be there, you know, as the uh, person who sells the newspaper to the protagonist when he needs to read the news. He's not changing. But the thing about your main character, your protagonist, is he or she is in a process of change and evolution mm-hmm. through those through that funnel. Now, let me elaborate on that just a little bit more because I, I would tell this to my students too. This character that you've created is not coming out the end of the story as clean as they were when we saw them in the beginning. The, the whole purpose is, is for them to evolve. This is why you choose this moment in the character's life because the character is living for high stakes. Right. Something is going to change. Yeah. Right? It has to change. And mm-hmm. so the reader will follow this character then through that process of evolution to the end. They will not be the same. Now, in formula fiction, yeah, they probably are. You know, James Bond doesn't change very much from one James Bond right. story. But if you're talking about literary fiction and real, you know, film, film, you know, I'm saying yeah. cinema, that character is being forced because of the ground situation at this moment in his or her life to confront something of major importance to them. And we'll, we will see how they deal with that. William Goldman, uh, the screenwriter and novelist, actually, William Goldman says that a, that a movie is the most important two hours of a character's life. Yes. And that's a really great way to think about it. That is a great way to think about it. Yeah. It isn't a casual, ordinary moment because that's going to be boring, right? Right. You've chosen the moment where this character has to confront something. One of the things I tell my students, and it's in the book too, uh, The Way of the Writer, 
when you're looking at your character and trying to figure out who she is or he is, one of the things you want to ask yourself is, what is their greatest fear? And I don't mean snakes or spiders like Indiana Jones. Right. I mean their greatest social fear. Right. One thing in life, they would rather die than not have to endure. Yep. You put them in that situation then. Yep. And see what happens. Yep. They're either going to break or they're going to change and, 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 and survive it, endure. Yep. You've got to figure out. What is their greatest social fear? And what that means for the student in the class, they know what it means. I got to figure out my greatest social yeah. fear. Yeah. Right? Where, what am I most afraid of? Where, what do I dread the most? And, and, okay, maybe that's what my character dreads. Yeah, I, I often have people, uh, uh, I won't have them share it, but I have them write it down. What, what's the worst thing you can imagine confronting or happening to you what's the last thing the last thing thing you don't even want to think about it so bad exactly right you don't even want to think about it and then when i when they i give them a few minutes to do that and when they've done that i say that's exactly what your characters have to go through something that intimate and that frightening that's right you know um yep. yeah you have to go to that place um and i find with with writers often they don't want to put their characters through too much trouble they, they get attached to people and they're like, oh, that seems like a lot. And they'll avoid conflict, right? Because they like this character and what well, doesn't have to be that bad. It's like, you know, instead of their child dying, maybe the child could get sick. It's like, that's, oh. you know what I mean? That kind of thing. They pull back, yeah. they pull back, they pull back. Um, and I'm finding over and over again, that's one of the hardest things for people is to, um, is to go to that place. It is. It's a tender place. It's a vulnerable place. You have to make yourself vulnerable to go there. Mm -hmm. and a lot of people don't want to do that. Um, it's because you're confronting something yeah. about yourself um, and indeed about the character too. Uh, it, it, you know, it, it takes hard work emotionally to do this. Why? Because you're being emotionally honest. That's, that's what's happening. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> this is a chance in, in a person's life when you can do that. You know, maybe you can't go out in the street and do that, you know, uh, but here in, on the page, you can go to those places and see, see what's going to happen. Um, it's almost the way John Gardner used to put it. I thought it was kind of interesting. You know, take uh, crime and punishment, right? And what's, what's on Raskal Nikal's mind? Uh, there is no God. And if there is no God, I can do anything. I can go kill this old woman over here, okay? And, and what will happen if I do that? Now, that's an experiment. Now, most of us are not going to go out and kill an old woman to see what the result's going right. to be. But you can do it in fiction, and you can trace what happens to him mm -hmm. you know, after this act and then the consequences thereof. Um, yeah, yeah, through fiction, we can go to places safely that, and explore them emotionally, intellectually, uh, that we normally can't do in, in our ordinary life and wouldn't do. You know? Right. Yeah. Um, but it allows, I think it allows a reader then or a viewer mm -hmm. to have the benefit again of that. I've talked about this before, but the benefit of that experience without going through it. Right. So they, there's a thought experiment where they go, okay, that's, I probably shouldn't go around killing 
<laughs> people, right? You know what I mean? Like it, like oh, if I draw it out, if I if I did the story math, yeah, right. It's like, and, and I think we all do it anyway in our regular lives when we weigh options. We do, are doing story math. Well, if I do this, what's the cause? What's the cause and effect? This is the cause. This is the effect. This is the cause. This is the effect. You know, and then you follow it, and you go, "That's probably not a good decision," or "That's a, you know." If your story math is off, you've make, you often make a horrible decision. Right, right. But I think it's not different. I think that this line in a lot of ways between um, a created story or a piece of fiction and, and uh, our lives is not a very hard line. And uh, it's kind of a soft line. And so what you're doing is you may be distilling your experiences and your philosophies into this story, but they don't only exist there, right? Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. There, there's implications. Yeah. Our, our lives, for our lived experience, you know, outside the novel or the story or the film. And, and stories have been used that way for the longest time. Think about Esau. You yeah. know, think about the uh, animal fables, you know, that we have the Jataka tales in the East or Esau, you know, teaching stories. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and that's like people sitting around a fire, you know, maybe in prehistoric times. And um, somebody's telling a story. Yeah. And, and the others are listening very carefully because they're probably wondering, what if I was in that situation? Would I do what this character is going to do? You know, is, in other words, it's, you learn yeah. from, uh, from art, a literary art or storytelling. I think, so. I mean, I think that's what they exist for. Um, I, I believe that in my bones, that that's why they exist. That's why we crave them. Um, that's why you can't go through a day without them. Um, it's like food. I think it serves almost exactly the same function and probably is as important as food. Um, if you didn't have food and you know, you didn't have a way to get food, you would try to think of stories that you knew about how people got food. If I was trapped on an Island, I'm like, what have I seen? What have I read about people trapped on islands? <laughs> right? Yeah. That's what I would do. That's well, what yeah. we do, I think. Well, no, we, uh, our minds are structured such that we, we organize our experience in terms of narratives, beginning, middles, and ends. It's probably an artificial structure that we impose upon the world. But there is something here in our minds that naturally, shapes experience in this fashion as a story. Again, yeah. even those basic terms, right? A beginning, something has a beginning and a middle and an end. That isn't necessarily what you see out here in nature, okay? Uh, with a beginning, middle, and end. That is what we impose uh, on our, on all, all of it, uh, all of experience. So we're built to do this. Now, as a Buddhist, that's one of the things I have to decondition myself about. Now, that may sound like a strange thing to say, but we can be seduced by our stories because they're very powerful. Um, but one of the things we do in meditation, and I sat before uh, I hooked up with you guys. I just, I always do that before I do a public anything. One of the things is get the stories out of my head mm -hmm. so that they are not in the way of me seeing right, what is right in front of me. Hmm. They are not making me prejudge things or make assumptions about things just to let things be and then you know try to see what's there right here right now not telling a story about it 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but letting it, because we, we can do that in a dangerous way. We can look at a present event and think of a past story and impose that on the present event. And I'm thinking of slavery. Mm-hmm. When we look at an event in the present time, 20, you know, in, in 2020, but we interpret it in terms of something in the 19th century, that can be problematic. Because hmm. this ain't then. That was two centuries ago. Right. If that makes sense. This is not the 60s either. So I don't think we can impose that interpretation on a present event and really appreciate the present event in all of its uniqueness. That's a, that sounds like a um, history, doesn't, uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes thing, where it's not the 60s, but there are, are there things from the 60s and stories from the 60s that might inform how we operate going forward? Well, I think it's very important to understand the past. Yeah. I mean, history is very, very important. I'm not blind to it, but, but neither am I bound by it. Mm-hmm. I really think we need to look carefully at every situation and careful about the language that we use. For a Buddhist who practices the Eightfold Path, it's called right speech. It's right speech. Um, and we, we are artists. And we are storytellers. We shape people's thoughts and feelings through, you know, what we do. Language is powerful. It's powerful. It's a tool we have to use with care. I used to live near a, um, uh, a West African shaman. And he, when he found out I, he, I was a writer, he said, oh, you're a writer. He said, words are the first magic, is what he told me. They, they make things happen. They make, you know, yes. uh, yeah, they make things real. They can make things real. Yeah. Words, right? <laughs> um, no, yeah, absolutely. I see that. As a matter of fact, I was just reading about this, and I had read something about this before uh, and seen a documentary about the, the Himba tribe in, uh, I think they're in West Africa. I don't okay. know if you know about but So it was a, it was a, a documentary that I saw about, uh, color and how we see color. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, they think the way we see color has to do with language mm. and how we categorize color. So what they did is they, they went to the, the, the Himba who have a different way of categorizing color than we do. And so uh, they, uh, for instance, they, we'd say the sky is blue, they say the sky is black. Mm-hmm. We would say the, that water's blue, they say water's white. And they categorized differently. And so they showed the Himba this screen of, uh, of green squares with one blue square. They're completely confused by it because they don't have a category that separates blue from green. Oh, I see. But you can show them a bunch of green squares with one that's slightly off, and they can pick it out like that. Mm-hmm. Because they have a name for all those different colors of green. I see what you're saying. Okay. Right? So it helps them see differently. The language. Right. The language. And then I was just recently reading that in Russian, because of the way they categorize blue, they see more colors in a rainbow. Rainbows are thicker. There's more colors that are invisible to us because we don't categorize them. Well, this reminds me of a thought that I've I've had really going back to 
you know, when I was an undergraduate, it's a, it's a variation on the Eskimo, you know, seeing all these kinds of snow mm-hmm. you know, that we don't normally see because we don't live that close to snow, right? Right. Uh, in other words, that, that um, the, the language is, uh, gives us, well, it, it can give us a perception, I guess, by, by focusing our intentionality, the, the way we, you know, aim at something. Um, I, you know, I, I go back and forth in my mind on this because I've heard, I've read, and they're probably wrong now, when I was undergraduate, scholars talking about the ancient Athenians and how they didn't see blue, blue. because they didn't describe it in any of their plays or, you know, words right. of art. So does that mean they didn't see blue? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I can't. I just recently it. read that again. So that that's what they think. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's speculative, but it's an interesting thought to entertain. Mm-hmm. Uh, our perceptual apparatus as humans is probably pretty similar across, you know, the last 2,000 years. But we know with other species, if you're a dog lover like I am, yeah. you know the subtlety with which they hear. And uh, yeah. we don't. And smell things that, you know, we don't. Um, so, yeah, other species experience the world out there differently than we do. But does culture among our species, as we go from culture to culture, and language system to language system, does that affect our perceptual experience, too? I, I haven't seen anything really conclusive on this, empirical, that just nails it. Mm-hmm. Um, is it the case, because you're talking about Russians, right? Yeah. That they don't, that they have a richer rainbow experience than we do. Yeah. How do you, how do you prove that? How do you test Well, that? that's one of the problems they have with things like color. That's what, it's like, well, how do you prove it? But there's a lot of things about consciousness you can't prove, right? I can't prove you're yeah. conscious, hmm? right? I can't prove that you are conscious. Oh, I know yeah. I'm conscious. I can't prove you're conscious. <laughs> right, right. I, I, I could be a robot. Uh, <laughs> no, no, conscious. But see, that, th- this is why I, uh, I, I focused uh, my graduate work uh, on phenomenology. Mm-hmm. Because it is a philosophy of consciousness. Everything that we experience is delivered to us through the mind, through consciousness. So I've always had that as an interest. And you find that in uh, Buddhist practice as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all about the mind and how it operates and so forth. From an Eastern perspective, however, if you look at early Buddhism, it, it really has the flavor and feel of a proto-phenomenology. But again, we're, we're talking about what delivers the world to us. That thing is consciousness, the mind. Uh, you talk about philosophical novels. Yes. What do you mean? I mean novels that explore ideas. I mean novels that pick, that pick up perennial questions in the human experience, you know, from East or West. Not Well, every one of my novels has a philosophical question at the core. Now, I told you the first one, uh, published one was Faith in, the, Faith in the Good Thing. The central question there that I keep recoming, coming back to again and again is, is faith in the good thing. What is the good? That's Plato's question. What is the good? The second novel, Ox Earning Tale, that's my Buddhist novel set in the slavery era. The question there is, what is the self? 
middle passage for Rutherford Calhoun and the Africans on the ship, the question is, where is home? Where is home? And the last novel I did, Dreamer, which is a civil rights movement in King, the fundamental question is, how do we end social evil without creating social evil? Now, I raise the question so I can explore it. I don't come to a conclusion to shut the question down, but rather allow the drama um, to, to, to let the reader experience palpably the question. Here, let me put it this way for you. I don't think ideas begin up in the ether, you know, in some abstract way. I am sufficiently existentialist to believe that ideas begin in the muck and mud of our experience. And what we experience, and then we start, and then we look at it, we ask questions. Then we can abstract the idea, take it out of the experience, and, and, you know, we can examine it, we can, but what I do in my fiction is I take those ideas that are perennial, and I put them back into the muck and mud of human experience and drama. So you can feel palpably the mm -hmm. question. It isn't just up here. It is a lived experience. So every one of my novels, and you could say some of those, I mean, the short stories too, to, to a large extent, uh, have a question at their center that I am working through. Do you, start, do you start with that question? Do you start your novel with that question? Well, if, I, if I'm working for five years, six years, seven years on a novel, it has to be a burning question for me, for me to keep coming back to it year after year and mm -hmm. three, two or 3,000 pages. It has to feel immediate to me. Uh, and I, I'm working my way through it with my head and my heart, you know, and research, you know, and, and, and finding ways, finally, to concretize it. Like I said, bring it back into to the muck and mud of human quotidian living, you know, everyday lived experience. Uh, we don't really have a philosophical tradition in America. Mm -hmm. we we, in the 19th century, we had writers who certainly were philosophically interested. Whether you're talking about Hawthorne, okay, with his moral tales, or you're talking about Melville, right? Especially mm -hmm. Moby Dick. You know, it was different then. Uh, and then what happens in American literature is, uh, we get the na we get naturalism. It comes along. You know, it's it, it's on the tail end of natural in the naturalism in the sciences. Uh, you get the open boat. You know, you get Stephen Crane. You know, a certain way of interpreting experience and taking you know, like the science you know scientific method. You don't, for example, apprehend or pull into the experience the spiritual register in people's lives. Right. You just kind of go at it in terms of the naturalistic uh, attitude. Uh, Edmund Husserl called that the natural attitude. And he had, and said Schweitzer had problems with it too. Once we get there with the naturalistic fiction, we're, we're on our road then to Hemingway and you know, minimalism and, and lots of other things. Uh, and also the idea that all you're doing as a writer is kind of like interpreting things that happen to you. You know, like an open boat, you know, uh, a crane, you know, we're not on an open boat. <clears throat> but the philosophical novel is rare in American literature. Now, among the French, they've had it, the philosophical story, all the way back to Voltaire, you know, and, and uh, Candide. It's just understood that philosophy and literature are sister disciplines. Mm -hmm. Here, we have an anti-intellectualism 
that really goes back to the 19th century. Um, you know, and, and I, I think it cripples our literature in many, many ways. Why do you think we have that? Because we're a democracy. And the idea around the time of Jefferson, I believe, is that the common man is most important. The common man, okay? I mean, we, we don't have kings and queens, you know, and, and all. I mean, that's why we broke away from England, right? Uh, it's the, 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 end of the common man. Uh, and so that's where you go and, and uh, you know, for um, your, your stories. Um, we, we don't, yeah, that's, that's what it is. We, we have a long-term anti-intellectualism, a suspicion of intellectuals. And you could take that right up into the 60s uh, with Spiro Agnew, uh, you know, the vice president for Nixon, having his problems with pointy-headed intellectuals, right? right. Uh, people who think too much. Um, no, no, it, it, it's, built into our, it's built into our literature, largely. Mm-hmm. You know? So we don't have much in the way of a philosophical tradition. There have been writers uh, who I feel are philosophically interesting, and, and they were about creating what I call the philosophical novel. One of them is Ralph Ellison with Invisible Man. Another one is Gene Toomer with his uh, work uh, that kicked off the Harlem Renaissance called Cain. I do think there's a philosophical dimension in Richard Wright, but particularly in terms of existentialism, and especially when he went to Paris and he's hanging out with Sartre and Simone, and they give him, you know, a copy of Husserl's Phenomenology, which he puts a blinder because he's working with it for sale, reading it, all, you know, everywhere he goes. Um, there, there is an existentialist and Marxist, certainly, element in, uh, in, in Richard Wright. Uh, Ellison is much more, I don't know, he, there, there's an efflorescence of ideas in Invisible Man. Uh, but we don't, generally speaking, uh, have, in my opinion, a really intellectually engaging um, fiction here in America. The novel of ideas? No. But I'll tell you where you do sometimes find it, science fiction. Hmm. Science fiction is very often about ideas, theories, scientific theory, and, and dramatizing those. That's, that's why I love the genre since, uh, you know, since I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here, I wish I, if we had more time, I would talk to you about uh, comic books. Uh, and what you got from uh, comic books, what you got from, uh, you know, because I think they are a form that has been um, often dismissed, although I think that's starting to change. Oh, I think it's been changing ever since Mouse. Yes, I think so. Yeah, which got uh, a major literary award, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah, the graphic novel is, hey, look, everybody is mining graphic novels for TV programs like The Walking Dead and movies, every time you turn around, something is based on a graphic novel because essentially it's a storyboard. It's already <laughs> been worked out in terms of shots and angles and close-ups and everything, right? Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I, I love comics because I'm an old cartoonist. Um, and uh, Abrams Comics Art is is doing a, a graphic novel for Middle Passage. And uh, the other thing that I just finished working on with Steve Barnes, a science fiction writer, is a uh, series of eight stories. We're, you know, we're calling it a graphic novel, but it's eight stories, kind of like the Canterbury Tales, where every one of the characters tells a story um, 
that that um, illustrates in a negative way the Eightfold Path of Buddhism. Uh, and they're all Steve's stories. He came up with the meat and potatoes, the story idea, the characters, the plot. And I just put in seasoning, you know, um, mm -hmm. in terms of philosophical stuff and, you know, Buddhist stuff. Um, but uh, our guy, John Jennings, he, he really he really likes it. You know, John uh, Jennings is uh, really directing uh, Megascope, which you've probably heard of. That is a division of Abrams mm -hmm. Comic Arts devoted exclusively to graphic novels by and about black people. The mm -hmm. first two adaptations that they did, uh, John uh, Jennings did the illustrations, uh, uh, Kindred and Parable of the Sower. Oh, right. Octavia, Octavia Butler. Mm -hmm. you know, the, the second one just came out quite recently, I think. Parable of the Sower. Long, 250 pages at least. Um, and, and he's got other uh, authors signed up too, you know, for this particular um, uh, graphic novel imprint. So, yeah, I, I could talk about comics, but it's new to me, you know, in a sense. Mm -hmm. I'm working on this. Uh, it's very new to me. Um, well, it's new to you as a form to work in. It's not new to you as a fan. No, no, no. I'm a right. fan from way back. Yeah. But it's new for me to, to work on it. Uh, you've got much more experience than I do with this as a form, Brian, I think. That may be. But uh, I just, you know, I know you're a big Jack Kirby fan and, and, and Stan Lee, and I, I was just wondering how, because what I find is that those, those creators impact my work uh, in very specific ways. Um, and, and I think that because they did superhero comics and people punching each other and stuff and people flying and stretching and all of that, right. that people don't understand that there could be real depth there. And um, anyway, I just think it would be interesting to talk to you about that sometime. I, well, that, I, that's, yeah, we know the Marvel story uh, about supposedly how they were going to go out of business and Stan decided, okay, we're going to just do one last shot. I'm going to do what I always wanted to do you know, kind of Shakespearean stories and so forth, and you get the Fantastic Four. And then you get all the things after that. With that's him. That's a guy finding his voice. That was a guy not afraid to use his voice. Mm -hmm. Right? right. Yep. Well, I got nothing to lose. I might as well. Exactly. You know, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. love that. There's some really good things in, in this. I wish we had more time to unpack things. Maybe we'll, we'll do another one. We'll do a follow-up or something. But uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Well, this has been a pleasure. Anytime I get to talk to you, Brian, is a joy and a pleasure. I learn, and, and we just kick back and have fun. It's a, it's a good time. I can't wait till we can all be in the same room and have coffee or something. Oh, yeah. That would be so nice. It'll be nice when that happens. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brian. <laughs> Take care. Thanks for watching You Are a Storyteller. If you have any questions or if there's a topic you'd like us to cover, leave a comment below or email us at hello at beliefagency.com.